0: Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding: Today's Bible
1: reading comes from the Book of Ruth. In the Pew Bible, that, um, the reading will come from page 222. We'll start in chapter one with verse uh, 15. And we'll read all the way down to the end of that chapter. Page 222, the book of Ruth. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever.
2: Mm -hmm. uh, Let us pray. Father, we... Come to your word, needing your grace, the grace of your Holy Spirit, to bring this word to our hearts and apply it to our lives. Lord, you are our only hope, even as we come uh, to your word. Thank you that you mean to equip us, you mean to train us, you mean to transform us, you mean to grow us in our faith, to grow us in our trust, to grow us in our love, to grow us in our hope. Grow us in being able to deal with the great difficulties of this world in which we live. Oh, bless us, Lord. We trust in You. Amen. If you have the outline, we're going to touch on that here in a bit. I hope it'll help explain a little bit of this passage. We're going to focus on uh, verses 19 and following. And if you've got... Uh, your Bible or you'd like to take the Pew Bible, it would help certainly to uh, look at the passage as uh, we talk about it. It's very odd to find in Scripture the why question of the children, children of Israel in the desert. And basically, because they asked why, they ended up a whole generation dying over a 40-year period. So from that incident, you'd think, boy, don't ever ask why. Just don't ask why. And yet, we have the Psalms full of people of faith asking why. Why? that set forth as an example to us of how we should worship, putting in our mouths as the hymns we should sing to ask why. And even our Lord Jesus on the cross asked why. He forever hallowed that question. So there's a way to ask the question And there's a way not to ask the question. Now, it's interesting that several commentators really rail against Ruth, uh, against Naomi in this passage. They call her a bitter old woman. Some don't even think she's converted, that she's a believer. I think the better commentators take this as the cry of a woman of faith. We'll see next week when we deal with this same passage and we're going to talk about the hope or the indications of hope in this passage uh, that even Naomi seems to ignore in her outcry. And we'll talk about that next week, but this, this week we just want to focus on this cry and be sure that we have the freedom before God and before one another to cry out honestly about the bitterness of life. That is a critical part of our faith. And if it's missing, it can be an indicator that we really don't take God seriously, that we really don't expect anything from God, that we really don't have faith in this God. Now, the passage beginning in verse 19 here, it says the two of them went on and in the Hebrew language they used phrases and words to mark beginnings and endings. And it's called in literature to create an envelope or a frame or brackets over sections. So this is an indicator that back in verse 7 when it says she set out and then they, her two daughters-in-law and her, went on the way to return to the land of Judah, then dot, 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 verse 19, and so they went on until they came to Bethlehem. So there's a section of the travel. And yet it begins with just the anonymous mention of the daughters-in-law with Naomi as the head. Here... The two of them, indicating that now they are bound together in a future. And the mystery is, how is it going to unfurl? Especially in the light of the great declaration of Ruth and Yahweh in the passage that we read beginning in verse 15. So, when... It's there, there's another bracket as well that we need to bear in mind that began, and, and this, this bracket has to do with the country of Moab. Back in verse 1, you see, they went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Verse 6, they returned from the country of Moab. And the very last verse, notice, and we'll talk about this next week, the significance, Ruth, it says, returned from the country of Moab. That's very significant and we're going to look at that next week. But you see, the whole thing could be described in a sense, the, the Moab tragedy, the, the loss at Moab, the Moab episode, the stage is set in Moab because now the problem is uh, in Act 1 is established, the emptiness of Naomi, and now we're going to see how it's resolved in chapters 2, 3, and 4. And there's just a snapshot you see in verse 19, isn't there? They went on until they came to Bethlehem. That's hours and hours of travel, right? But then when they get to Bethlehem, the camera starts rolling. And we start to see the detail of when they came into the city. And it describes the whole town, the whole city. But then when it says they said, it's feminine. So the the good way to translate it is... As Bush says, when they entered Bethlehem, all the women of the town buzzed with excitement because of them saying, is this really Naomi? And the emphasis is Naomi. It's like, can this be Naomi? Naomi? And they're talking to each other and they're buzzing. They're, talk, they're, they're, they're running around saying, why, it's Naomi. It's Naomi. We would say, no way. Not Naomi. That's the feel as they come into the city. And it's important to feel that excitement. It's the same word that's used when uh, Solomon was coronated king. It's the same word that was used when Israel shouted joyfully at the arrival of the ark. But the the narrator, the storyteller, wants us to get the feel of that that cry, that glorious... uh, saying, it's Naomi in joy, and then the contrast of Naomi responding to that. And that's where your outline, you see, there's a narration introduction, then the trigger, as uh, Bush calls it, the the commentator Bush, why it's Naomi. And so, two times she denies it. Wordplay one is, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. Her name means pleasant or lovely. She says, "Don't call me that anymore." She, she hears this name. "It's pleasant. pleasant is here. Pleasant is here. Don't use that word anymore with me." You know names describe the character of a person. They describe the whole meaning of a person's life, the whole destiny of a person. as Abram's name was changed to Abraham, or Simon was changed to Peter. It's as though she says, "I need a name change because my name is not lovely anymore. It needs to be bitter. And so it was a mockery, a ridicule of her name. Stop the celebration. This is, this is ridiculous. It's like the Desire Street projects in New Orleans that, were, that began to be built in 1949 under Title III, the federal program Title III. And these projects were built... Cheaply, They were wooden structures with brick veneer. The, the area was cut off with canals and, and railroad tracks on all four sides. It was isolated. It was very expensive to repair these buildings. The place just began to crumble over the decades. Until the 1990s, it was the most dangerous uh, projects in the United States. And friend, a friend of ours, Mo Leverett, was ministering in this area, and we spent a couple of nights down there with him. Uh, but this area had names of streets such as this, and you can still look on the map and find them. Desire, Abundance, Benefit, Treasure, Vision, Piety, Humanity. A mockery. A mockery of what was happening in that place. By the way, there was just under major reconstruction when the flood hit, and Desire Street Ministries is still seeking to minister in that area, but that's another story. Um, you see, you'd, you'd say, don't call it desire anymore. It's not desire. Call it destruction. Call it murder. And she's saying, call my life disaster. Call it Mara, which means bitter. And the emphasis is on bitter there. For bitter has the Almighty made my life. And she says, I went out full. And you notice as I have it there on the sheet, I full went away. Empty has brought me back Yahweh. There's a deliberate phraseology there to put at contrast, I was full, I came back empty. I went out, He brought me back. And the emphasis is, I was doing fine until Yahweh got a hold of me. <laughs> That's the feel. It, it, it was fine, but, and, and I went out, even the famine that I left in, that doesn't constitute anything. That, I was full, I had my boys, I had my husband. I've come back empty, and it's Yahweh that did it. I was good until Yahweh put me down. And it pits, the way it's phrased in the Hebrew, pits I and Yahweh as almost opponents here. Such as the bitterness that she feels. The irony between what she was and what Yahweh has made her. And then she engages again Don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. And then the question, why do you call me pleasant? When Yahweh has spoken against me. You see, don't speak to me that I'm lovely or pleasant. When Yahweh, and she uses a court uh, phrase here, taken out of the legal realm uh, in the Hebrew language, so that it's as though God has given testimony against me. And of course, if Yahweh has spoken the sentence again, if Yahweh has given testimony against me, it's irrefutable. Who's going to give anything else? Yahweh's testified against me. And Shaddai, or the Almighty, has pronounced disaster on me. And so she portrays herself as a defendant in a legal action who's already been found guilty and punished. But she doesn't know the charges. She doesn't know the testimony against her. Since Yahweh controls these things, He must be the one who has been witness against her. And she uses, you see in your sheet, there's an ABBA construction here. Shaddai is the word especially used in Genesis for God's power. It speaks of, and it's usually translated, Almighty. It's, it's a term used. When God was blessing uh, the patriarchs it 's also used in justice context in contexts where He brings punishment. It, it really points to the fact that he 's the cosmic ruler over all things, and so she uses this name for the one who rules everything and decides destinies for people he 's made my life bitter indeed that first statement. It literally means He's bittered my life. He's pronounced disaster upon me. But there is a kind of faith that's even stated here. Her worldview, you can tell, doesn't allow her to rail at chance or circumstances. She says... She puts it right at the feet of the one she knows is responsible, Yahweh. It's interesting how when disaster occurs, we, many times, and you'll hear even believers, you'll hear even Christian leaders say, well, God didn't have anything to do with that. God doesn't do those kinds of things. As though God, at that point, uh, was looking the other way, perhaps or fumbling, meant to stop it, but couldn't stop it. She doesn't have that worldview. There's no other possibility for her. She's helpless in the face of God's almighty power, and she cries out. The commentator Campbell calls this, as it's called many times, the theology of complaint in the Scriptures. The theology of complaint And he writes this, Not only is complaint tolerated by God, but it can even be the proper stance of a person who takes God seriously. Anyone who ascribes full sovereignty to a just and merciful God may expect to encounter the problem of theodicy, that is, of suffering under God. And to wrestle with the problem is no sin, even when it leads to an attempt to put God on trial. And from the scriptures and from the examples of even our Lord Jesus and the, and the psalmists, it is a duty at times. It is what we are called to. It's what God puts in our mouth even to come to Him and say, Lord, You are righteous and You are good and You are just and You are merciful. Lord, I don't see it. I don't see it. See, that takes Him seriously. Instead of, eh, I knew. I knew it would happen that way. You you, you can't expect anything to turn out right. You ever said that? Kind of don't even expect Him to really... Be God, or be good, or be righteous, or anything to turn... It's just... It's just let it go. You don't see that in the Scriptures. You see people taking God seriously. The freedom of a faith that ascribes full sovereignty to God. And she takes God so seriously that as Job did and as Jeremiah did, she openly voices her complaint... Her honesty and her forthrightness before God. And I think one of the keys to learn to cope with the pain and uncertainty of life is to talk about who is involved, and that is God Himself. Don't shy away from that. Don't, you know, think, I just can't attribute this to God. No, it is in His hands. It is not an easy thing to do. As Atkinson writes, Naomi knows that the Shaddai, the Almighty, with whom she can leave her bitterness, is also the Yahweh who has brought her home as well. And so, Psalm 45, the Lord declares this, For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I equip you though you do not know me. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. I don't see God throwing out anything that would lead us to believe, oh, I'm sorry, I had no part in this, I'm sorry. He says, I make well-being, I create calamity. Now, it can comfort us, though, to know who it is. Does God know about what happens in our life? Is He aware of what's happening here? Is God the one who gave His only Son to die for you? The one who's going to come and resurrect you completely? Remake heaven and earth as a place for you to dwell in overflowing happiness forever? That's the one who did it. You see, to associate and say the God who gave His Son, the God who attends me, the God who will resurrect me, the God who created the new heavens and the new earth for me. Oh, that is the God who does this. And so we have to be careful that we deny the very sovereignty of God And that's why, because they believe in the sovereignty of God, the writers ask, why? Notice in Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 42. Say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Psalm 43 verse 2 For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning? Psalm 44. Listen to this. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? You see his sins? You're not doing anything. Why are you as- asleep, Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Psalm 74. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Or later in that Psalm 74, Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand, take it from the fold of your garment and destroy the enemy? Psalm 88, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? And of course, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very words Jesus adopts for the cross. Jesus himself. And we don't need to lessen that and say, well, he really wasn't confused. He really wasn't crying out to his own father whom he knew so well. Why have you forsaken? Yes, he was. And he was falling in line with the believing, expectant cries of his people who long for God to show forth his righteousness. And so Naomi falls in line with all of these believers in to say that God himself has done this thing. This is the biblical mindset. Was God sovereign in bringing the famine to start with in Ruth chapter 1? Was He he sovereign in taking my husband and two sons? Did God have anything to do with that? Of course. Was God standing by helplessly? Whoa, 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 wait, wait wait a minute, Satan. You've gone just a bit too far in killing this person. I'm really getting upset at what you're doing. Because many people attribute these things, oh no, God didn't do that, it was Satan that did it. Or was God absent? Did God come on the scene saying, what in the world is going on? I turn my back for a minute and look what happens. Is that God? You see, that God is involved is our only comfort. It is our only comfort that He is in the middle of what is happening in our life. That He is bringing it about. Purposely in our life. Robert Layton, writing, he's a 17th century Puritan writer, writing to a very depressed woman. He says this, I bid you vent your rage into the bosom of God. Vent your rage into the bosom of God. And you see, the glorious thing is that when God made this world, and I, you know, I've, I've shared this before, I, I've struggled hugely with suffering in this world. I've, I've cried out to God literally hundreds of times over it. Not really my own, because I've, I've really not been through that much suffering. But I have just cried out again and again and again. Read something this week in the newspaper and, Here I go again. You know, just not understanding it. But my comfort, one of the the great comforts I have is that God did not stay in the stands, but He entered into suffering Himself. What God would make a world in which He would plan to suffer in that world. And we need to understand too that Jesus not only bore sin on the cross, but he bore all the misery of sin on the cross. All the pain and suffering that there could be, he bore it on the cross. He had to not just bear, you see, the punishment, but all misery was swallowed up so that one day all misery will be removed from us. How can we fathom the infinite pain that he bore and swallowed so that it would no longer be ours one day? Hannah was faithful, anybody doubt that? She wept bitterly for Samuel 1. Mordecai, a man of faith in Esther Cried out with a loud and bitter cry. So, this assumes, you see, a positive view of God. It assumes God is just and good. And so, it will not rest. And brothers and sisters, there's a sense in which we ache and long for that final day of Christ's coming and for all things to be made right, and we cannot stop thinking about it. We cannot rest until that day comes. We cannot rest until Christ is vindicated, until righteousness prevails in this world. And... The writer, Peter, was talking about Lot who suffered daily because of the atmosphere in which he lived. And there is that sense that whereas we have a peace that passes all comprehension, we have the aching of Romans 8, looking for the day of the freedom of the children of God in the presence of God. I just want to address in a final moment here, that if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, the Scriptures teach that there is a misery of this world because we are cut off from God and we're not in fellowship with God, but that misery will finally usher into an absolute misery. Even now, you at least, every single thing you enjoy is because God is still His goodness is still present with you, and still He has mercy upon you, even if you turn your back upon Him. You probably ate yesterday, you have clothes on your back, you have heating and air conditioning, you have shelter, you have many, many benefits that you couldn't even name. All of these are because God has not cut you off completely. But the scriptures teach us that this affliction and misery, this world that's mixed with good and misery, will one day be all misery in the final judgment. And all the goodness that you enjoy, you will be cut off from forever. Because the goodness of God's presence will be forever gone. And so, C.S. Lewis would say that the misery and pain and the the natural calamities, etc., anything that happens in this world is a red light. It's a sign to us that all is not right. And it is just a foretaste. It's just a foretaste of the, the, the dam breaking and the water of God's judgment pouring out over this world. Please don't have in your mind, well one day my suffering will be over in some kind of cloudy, nebulous idea that everything will be okay when I die. It will not if you don't know the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus, the Son of God who died upon the cross, bore sin for sinners and He bore the misery of that sin and He offers to you the forgiveness that only He can provide. And fellowship that you will have with Him so that in this life you will begin to taste His goodness and then finally enter into the place where all misery is gone. God is so against our misery and pain that one day it will all be gone. There will not be one scrap left. He hates it infinitely more than you do. Infinitely more. If He uses it in your life, if He uses it to cause you to become more like Christ and to make you a greater, greater instrument in His hand to do good to others, it doesn't mean that He takes joy in the thing itself. It will one day be completely removed. And so there is only one hope that any of us has. One hope in the midst of the misery of this life. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Him there is a new purpose in life that even those in the Psalms could not know in the way that we can because of the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is a purpose that we have in everything, as Paul says, to live to the glory of this Lord Jesus Christ and to be conformed to Him more and more in all that is happening. So in the midst of our honest cries, we fellowship with one who himself has entered into far worse suffering and misery and is able to, to meet our needs, as the writer of Hebrews says, and to come to the aid of those who suffer because... He has suffered in the same way. The psalmists didn't have such a one. God has come to us. God has suffered in the flesh. And God is intimate with His people who now suffer. So in the midst of our honest cry, we at the same breath in a sense can say, Oh Lord Jesus, You are with me in my suffering. Let us pray. O Lord, we pray that You would give us an honesty with You, an expectant faith, that Lord, we would batter the doors of heaven, so to speak, at times. That we would wrestle with You as Jacob did. That we would wrestle with You as we've just heard the psalmist do. Not with that cry of unbelief and frustration and self-pity and idolatry of the people of Israel in the wilderness, in unbelief saying, God has just brought us out to kill us. But the cry that expects you to do good and in confusion can't understand what is happening. Oh Lord, may we be faithful in crying to you honestly. May we... Help one another to cry out honestly. Lord, may we dig out our fears, dig out our frustrations. May we voice our, our pain before You. May we, as Leighton says, bent our rage into Your bosom, O oh God, especially in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who has suffered for His people and borne their punishment and their misery and will one day remove it forever. Oh, Lord, we praise you for your salvation that reaches right to where we live day in and day out. Bless us, Lord, that we will find you in the midst of our pain. For Jesus' sake,
0: amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. gradient through the shades of night, and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away? And shall my soul with rapture trace the wonders of